You are listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Okay, good morning everybody. Uh, welcome. Uh, the topic today is strategic stability, the solution, the problem, or the cause of confusion. Uh, I am Thomas Moore. Uh, you can see who I am inside the handout for this uh, panel. And you can see who the other panelists are. More importantly, you have amongst yourselves, though, a copy of their work, uh, which I have to say I think is quite good. Uh, <laughs> mainly because I was invited to be the moderator at the last minute. No, uh, it is quite good. Uh, it's good because it's timely. Obviously, as we get closer and closer to April 5th this year, which is the four-year anniversary of the President's Prague speech, there's a lot of focus on whether the United States can go to lower numbers of deployed nuclear warheads or lower numbers of systems they go on or lower numbers generally. Very, very closely related to that is the idea of what is and what is not a stabilizing decision vis-a-vis the United States, Russia, and even China. Now, the hard work for me, at least, in this book, was done by Thomas Schelling in the foreword, where he says his only question in approaching the book was, what is strategic stability? Uh, Each of these authors uh, that are with us today have a slightly different take on it. They all talk a lot about the history. Bridge, for his part, goes into great detail in terms of what he thinks stabilizing actions might mean vis-a-vis certain kinds of weapons, namely W-76 warheads on Trident SLBMs. Matthew has discussed for you what Russia typically sees as a part of strategic stability, which includes more than nuclear weapons uh, in the United States. It includes things like prompt global strike and missile defense. And last but not least, we have what I thought was the funniest essay, and that's James Acton's, because in it, he very usefully points out something that in diplomatic parlance, Russians do, and to a large extent, Americans do, almost like diplomatic, what did you call it, spackling paste, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, That's particularly true because it reminds me of a tweet recently from Sergei Lavrov, where he said they weren't overly concerned with the regime in Syria, they just wanted it to be stable. (laughs) Uh, This brings up a very interesting fact, and that's one conception of stability is different from someone else's, particularly when it gets to the term strategic stability. Of course, each of these authors has to some extent discussed arms race stability, they've discussed crisis stability, and they've used various important and powerful references to make their cases. But I think the best way to do this is for each of them to summarize briefly what they think strategic stability is, then I will ask them a few questions and then turn it over to all of you. So I propose that we would go in the order that they are listed on the program, which would mean Bridge starts first. Great. Well, well thank you, uh, Tom, for, for agreeing to moderate uh, uh, on late notice. We're, we're delighted to have Tom uh, uh, fill in. For those of you who don't know uh, Tom, he is uh, recently at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, where he was the top staffer for Senator Luger on arms control issues and now going to be joining CSIS. But uh, 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 Chris Ford, unfortunately, had to, had to cancel. He, he, he switched with Tom. He's, he's now up on the hill, so he, had, he got called away. But uh, thank you also just on, on behalf of the, the, the authors uh, for, for coming today. Uh, it's freezing out there, so appreciate the effort. But um, just to get to the substance, um, my, my view of strategic stability is, is basically that 
it's, a, it's an extremely valuable concept, and it should be a concept uh, that the United States adopts in its relationships with, with the major powers, particularly uh, Russia and China, and elements of it should apply to smaller rogue states. Um, but my own view is that we need to have a conception of strategic stability that focuses both on minimizing the chances of major war, including nuclear war, among the great powers, while also ensuring that deterrence operates effectively. That is, to have a genuine and meaningful stability, which I think is the only kind worth having, we want both to capture the pacifying and deterring aspects of nuclear weapons while suppressing, to the extent possible, their essentially ancillary, destabilizing and exacerbating qualities. This means that strategic stability should be understood to mean something different than I think it often has in the past, which is to say a single-minded focus on reducing the incentives to use nuclear weapons. In my view, this definition is defective because such a unitary focus on minimizing the incentives to use nuclear weapons would, if successful, undermine the goal of deterring major war in general, either by actually or just merely seeming to make things safe for conventional war. Either way, such an understanding could neutralize just exactly what it is that we want to get out of nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. So if the concept of strategic stability is actually to contribute to a genuine stability between potential adversaries, in my view, it must incorporate rather than implicitly exclude the ways in which nuclear weapons do good things by deterring major war. A useful conception of such stability must then seek to minimize or eliminate fundamentally immaterial or peripheral incentives to use nuclear weapons while preserving and even validating those incentives to use nuclear weapons that are essential for effective deterrence and therefore stability. Such a framework, if it's going to be intellectually but also meaningful in policy terms, must indicate not only the ways in which nuclear weapons can't be used but in ways in which they're legitimate. So in my view, strategic stability should be taken to mean a situation in which no party has an incentive to use nuclear weapons save for vindication of its vital interests in extreme circumstances, the only context in which uh, which can justify the use of such terrible weapons. Now, of course, terms like vindicate and major aggression are subject to to debate and and are uh, not susceptible to precise delineation, but I think things like the 2010 nuclear posture reviews confining of threatened first use to extreme circumstances involving the U.S. or its allies uh, satisfy this, uh, this criterion. In a strategically stable situation, then, a, a nation would see neither need nor incentive to use nuclear weapons except to make clear to an opponent that he had crossed a most vital red line with a probability that he would suffer further and perhaps catastrophic loss uh, if he continued his, his aggression. Such an an understanding of stability would encompass the essential concerns of first strike stability in minimizing the reasons for nuclear use while recognizing that some uses of nuclear weapons must be valid for stability to endure. In such a situation, then, great war would only come about because one party truly sought it, not because of miscalculation. Now, let me just briefly say what kind of nuclear uses would would be acceptable under this kind of uh, conception. Because the point of strategically stable nuclear use would be to de-escalate a spiraling conflict on satisfactory terms, valid nuclear uses would need to be limited, discriminant, and evidently restrained, designed to demonstrate both resolve and the willingness to escalate further, as well as the readiness to restrain further use. The point of nuclear use under this conception of strategic stability would definitively not be to attempt to break out of a situation of mutual vulnerability, but rather to signal to an opponent that he had transgressed a most vital interest, to demonstrate one's resolve, and to inflict pain on the opponent. 
So discriminant options, discriminant nuclear options designed to do these kinds of things would be particularly useful. And I think I would be happy to talk more about what the specific concrete ramifications of this kind of conception would be. I think this kind of conception puts a real premium on limited uh, uh, capabilities that, that, that can show an opponent that he's kind of crossed that red line. I also think that this, this conception of stability allows for ways for the United States and other countries to pursue different sources of advantage or different sources of, of, uh, of leverage in a way that can still preserve that basic uh, stabilizing conception. And I also think it has some important uh, and relatively modest implications for, for the U.S. nuclear force, again, which I'd be happy uh, to discuss uh, in the question and answer period or, or if Tom wants to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Pat. Uh, okay, so I think I have prepared... Um, much, much more to say than I ought to say, at least in, in, in this initial format. I'll let and, you know. and it's all, <laughs> I know that you will. Uh, and, it, and it's all in the chapter anyway. So I think what I'm, what I'm going to do is describe uh, what I hope maybe is the, the one um, phrase that I might have coined in this chapter or the new concept I, I, I'm trying to introduce here, which is the relevance of what I call the great power gambit. Uh, to Russia's thinking about strategic stability. Um, and it grows out of a few premises that I want to introduce quickly. The, the first is a, a, a cognitive dissonance that I think we're all pretty familiar with, uh, those of us who watch Russia uh, and think about nuclear issues. And that is that, you know, it's clear that the overwhelming majority of Russians, uh, as indeed the overwhelming majority of Americans, understand the Cold War is over, the political relationship has changed, and that therefore the role of nuclear deterrence must be different. And yet, and yet, Russia still enjoys this overwhelming and very persuasive, very palpable Soviet legacy in its nuclear arsenal, first and foremost. What that means is that there is no other single resource in Russia. And think of the nuclear arsenal as a resource and everything that goes with it as a resource um, that provides Russia with such a dominant position. And that goes, by the way, even for oil and gas. I think increasingly today in the world of non-conventional gas resources, uh, Russia is questioning where is it a superpower? And it is clear that in the nuclear realm, Russia has inherited a resource that makes it a superpower. So premise number one is it's important to Russia that the resource remains important. All right. Um, additional premises. The post-Cold War order is a multipolar world, which is managed by a handful of so-called great powers, of which Russia is rightfully one. All right, this, is, this is certainly Mr. Putin's view. This is very widely held uh, among influential Russians. And yet, recognizing Russia's weakness in most other measures of power, as I said, nuclear being the exception, economically, demographically, uh, even in terms of the cultural attraction, the sort of soft power, certainly conventional forces, nuclear weapons must bear a relatively greater share of the burden in supporting Russia's great power self-conception or its great power aspirations. Um, okay, so these are the premises. So what, in fact, is the gambit? The gambit is this. Russia portrays every strategic move by the United States or its allies that might have any, even a remote or an infinitesimal implication for strategic stability as it has been traditionally understood as a major issue, as a sine qua non of global security. So when this works out well, uh, when Russia wins, according to this, this gambit, the United States uh, treats Russia's concerns seriously. It adjusts its behavior based on Russia's stated concern. And in that sense, Russia is able to benchmark its great power status or its putative great power status against the obvious acceptance of that by the United States. 
Now, of course, it's a gambit, so Russia might also lose. When Russia loses, the United States or you know, your relevant kind of Western constellation dismisses Russia's objections, proceeds anyway with whatever it was to which Russia had objected, and proves to the world essentially that the emperor has no clothes. Um, in practice, of course, this will certainly lead to a Russian backlash, punishment, some attempt to, to retrench its position, uh, although that still may not alter the initial U.S. response. Um, and I think you could see a kind of cyclical downward spiral, and indeed in a, in a, in a non-nuclear setting we're seeing precisely that kind of spiral uh, happening in the relationship today. Um, so what is the impact of this, of this notion of a great power gambit on, uh, on Russian views of strategic stability. I think there's broad agreement uh, across a number of schools of thought, which I, which I introduce in the chapter, that developments that may reduce the relative importance of Russia's nuclear arsenal should be resisted, whether that resistance is couched in terms of strategic stability or in sort of vaguer, spackling pace type terms, as, as, uh, as James describes them, or otherwise. Um, just a couple of additional kind of ways that Russians think differently from Americans that I think are important to to offer here. Um, one is that you know there's a there's a, a basic belief based on collective memory of kind of Russian suffering at the hands of foreign invasion that that wars happen. Um, the the point of dealing with war is not to prevent war, but is to survive war with minimal damage to the core political, military, and industrial capabilities of the state, right? Think about the Mongol invasion, Napoleonic invasions, Nazi Germany, Teutonic Knights, Swedes. This stuff happens. Um, you've got to get through it. Second is that domestic observance and observation of other great powers around the world conclude, leads Russians to conclude uh, that decisions big decisions, including decisions to initiate conflict, are often made irrationally and against what would seem to be the obvious interests of the decision maker. Um, again, think about communism, corrupt government officials in Russia, and, and the invasions of Russia that I mentioned. Third is that being the world's largest state and the last, in, in Russia's view at least, uh, surviving great European empire, um, Russia believes in its uniqueness as a great global power. The, some think of this as, as Russia as the third Rome, uh, sort of the bastion of, of Western civilization even, the, the only true bastion of Christianity. Uh, Bridget and I were just talking about this. And, and the idea is that Russia accordingly needs both a unique global mission and unique capabilities. And this gives very unique significance, again, to the nuclear arsenal. And then fourth, the idea that uh, from bitter experience again, uh, at the hands of oppressive authorities at home and brutal criminals, but also at the hands of these repeated foreign invasions. You've heard me sort of repeat this, this phrase over and over. It's incredibly significant in the Russian psyche. Uh, Russians have concluded that weakness will be exploited and that the only way to have prosperity and indeed survival is through strength and power. So keep these principles kind of in the background of your mind. And then finally, and, and here I'm going to end, Tom, I, I know you're going to start signaling me, uh, it, the idea that Nuclear weapons are just fundamentally seen differently uh, from the second country to develop them than they are from the first. Um, and it's not only a matter of sequence. Uh, of course, you know, the United States was several years ahead of the Soviet Union, depending on, on what you take as your operative dates in developing nuclear weapons. And therefore, the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons were a response to the United States, or at least could be justified as such. The United States was the first and only state to use them in an armed conflict. 
Russia does not have to bear that psychological burden in its thinking about the use and significance of nuclear weapons. And of course, let's not forget that for decades, the United States enjoyed a significant advantage in both the quality and quantity of its nuclear forces relative to the Soviet Union, and the argument can be made that we continue to enjoy that advantage today. And so when you see these things from the perspective of Russia, the bottom line is it is not enough to simply say, what would Russia do? using an American brain to ask that question. That type of analytical framework just doesn't work, and yet we see it all the time. So I'm going to end there. Thank you. James? Thanks, Tom. Um, a number of us on the panel and a number of us in this room have been debating since 2009 whether or not the Prague agenda was a good idea uh, and President Obama's speech about a world without nuclear weapons. And I think even Bridge would have to concede that had the president not given that speech, you wouldn't have got 50 people in a room at 9.30 on a, on a, on a weekday morning okay. to discuss what <laughs> does strategic stability mean. And the issue is actually an important one because it's a term that gets used and thrown about endlessly by NGO types, by government officials, by diplomats. And frankly, if you listen to a lot of this, and you try to work out based on what they're saying, what does strategic stability mean? You know, I reached the conclusion that weapons I like are stabilizing, <laughs> weapons I don't like are destabilizing. And that may be you don't name them anymore, that, do that may be an issue that that may be a definition that everybody can agree upon, but it doesn't help reach agreement upon what weapon is stabilizing and what's destabilizing. So you know, in, my, in, the, in, the, in the chapter that I wrote for this volume, my answer for what strategic stability should mean will, I think, for many in this room, be shocking, heretical, <laughs> and provocative. That is, the basic Cold War concept for strategic stability is still the right one. Now, Saying that sentence presupposes there was an agreed Cold War definition of strategic stability, which in many ways there wasn't. There were lots of ideas put forward, but there was never the consensus that some people seem to make out there was. So my definition for strategic stability, which I mean, and I have to acknowledge, you know, builds very, very heavily, particularly on the work of Tom Schelling, who's just sitting over there in the audience, is that um, a relationship is stable if neither state uh, f feels or sorry has or perceives an incentive to change its force posture out of concern that in an adversary a crisis in a crisis an adversary might use nuclear weapons first let me say that again having butchered it the first time a relationship is stable if neither party has or perceives an incentive to change its force posture out of concern that in a crisis an adversary might use nuclear weapons first. Now, that definition takes into account dynamics that can operate on very different timescales. In seconds or minutes or hours, an adversary in a deep crisis worried um, that it, it might be the victim of nuclear use might decide to use nuclear weapons. That's what we traditionally call crisis instability. At a very long timescale, um, measured in years, and uh, a state might decide to change its force posture by building more nuclear weapons if it worries for the survivability of its forces in a crisis. And that's what we call arms race instability. 
But also there's intermediate timescale dynamics that haven't been discussed so much, but are actually historically very important. I mean, one is on the course of hours or days, a, a state might change its false posture because it's worried about being the victim of a first strike in a crisis, or worried about being the victim of nuclear use in a crisis. And, you know, I think there's, I, I have in the, in, in the chapter, uh, four historical examples of where during the Cold War, states did behave in this particular way. They include, you know, Soviet alerting its forces during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I think the historical evidence suggests the Soviets almost certainly did do. Uh, China alerting its forces at the height of the 1967 border crisis with the Soviet Union. Um, the U.S. alerting its forces um, during the 1980s when Soviet submarines approached the U.S. coast. Um, and also, um, oh, I forgot what the fourth one is now. Um, so those, um, that's my definition. And I... I, I, I it's very important to, to, I think, to say right from the beginning, and this is the point that I want to end on, what I'm not saying. Because this definition opens itself up to a series of attacks based on straw men. And in particular, the attack that is regularly made is that the stability of relations between nations depends on much, much more than just nuclear weapons. It depends on the balance of conventional military forces, emerging technologies, economics, demographics, uh, history, ideology, personality. Let me be very clear. That is completely and absolutely 100% correct. I am not suggesting for one second that nuclear weapons are the most important factor in determining the relationship between states or that the fear of being on the receiving end of a nuclear strike is the only possible cause of nuclear war. What I am saying is that um, we would be living in a safer world if states felt no pressure to change their nuclear, to change their posture if they were worried about being on the receiving end of a nuclear strike. Um, Particularly in a crisis, in the unlikely event that relations were strained uh, to the point that nuclear use was conceivable, those fears of a first strike could become very uh, dangerous and pressure states into nuclear use in a crisis. And that is something we should want to avoid. So defined in this way, strategic stability provides an insight into only a partial aspect of nuclear deterrence, but an important one nonetheless. Um, and other factors matter too. You know, the effectiveness of deterrence is another important uh, metric that needs to be taken into account. Cost is an important metric, particularly today. Alliance relations are a, an important metric. But unlike Bridge, you know, the reason I think it's helpful to separate analytically strategic stability and the effectiveness of deterrence is because there are good arguments that the two can sometimes be in tension to one another, that what makes for an effective deterrent doesn't necessarily make for a strategically stable situation, and vice versa. Now, whether or not you agree with those arguments, 
from the point of view of conceptual clarity, which is what we're about in definitions, I think it's very helpful to separate different concepts clearly so that we can assess whether or not there are cost benefit, uh, uh, whether or not there are trade-offs between them. Trying to lump all the relevant factors together in a single definition, I think, makes it much harder to debate those trade-offs clearly. Um, and there are trade-offs. Um, so that's, that's why the definition that I support is a narrow definition, but also a modest definition, in that it acknowledges this is not the only factor that needs to be considered when it comes to the nuclear posture. It's just one, it's an important factor, but it is only one of a number of competing factors. Thank you. So let's start from there, and let me ask Bridge and James to publicly disagree with each other a little bit. Which we've um, never because, done. Never done. Uh, that might be useful for everybody. Let me start where James left off. Posture changes in a crisis are particularly destabilizing. Posture changes outside of a crisis are less stabilizing, or destabilizing, pardon me. Uh, Bridge recommends a slight posture change in his piece, as I mentioned, uh, the deployment of W76s on Trident SLBMs. Uh, We might want to explain a little bit more for everybody in the room what you meant by that, too. But I wonder what James's view of that posture change would be vis-a-vis Bridges' chapter. Do you want to explain it first? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so so the the, the specific concrete recommendation, it follows from... This, this notion I have that, that um, which again is, uh, I too need to pay my debts to, to Tom Schelling, who's here generously, um, arguments that, that he and others kind of explored in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, which is that you would ha- use nuclear weapons essentially as, I think Larry Friedman, uh, in summarizing the way of thinking, basically said, as, as instruments of political instruments, political signals. The signal doesn't obviously convey the, the enormity and gravity of what you're talking about, but um, that, that's the idea. And so that what you want to have are capabilities that allow you to have options, credible options for nuclear employment that do not themselves lead to immediately or, or certainly to, to the ultimate cataclysm. And so what I, what I think concrete ways that we could improve our force, the U.S. force, is by um, basically taking uh, probably one to two missiles per um, uh, Ohio submarine uh, removing the secondary so you have a primary only uh, uh, capability. And uh, this would be a very, you know, we could do it very confidently. It's not very expensive. And the, the resulting detonation would be a lot smaller uh, than we might expect other, other, uh, uh, other methods to be. Obviously, it would still be a nuclear explosion, so it would be a big deal, but that's kind of the point. The other thing I talk about is, is having a, a, a follow-on to the air-launched cruise missile with, with the capability to do, something, to do something similar, thereby giving the United States a, a better... Uh, ability, especially in an increasing uh, an, an era of increasingly sophisticated uh, possible adversary air defenses, to have options up, kind of up and down the ladder of, of uh, destructive uh, capability. So, um, anyway, James, if you want to comment. Cool. Well, the first thing I should say is I'm not against posture changes. I'm against states feeling forced into making posture changes because of fears about what might happen if an adversary uses nuclear weapons first. And I actually think that Bridges' example of the low-yield W76 is a very good example about why it's helpful to separate strategic stability from the effectiveness of deterrence. If you were to do what Bridges suggests, it's very clear that Russia would and China would both worry that this was about facilitating a first strike in a crisis. 
Um, the Russians and the Chinese have long kind of talked about conventional weapons and worried that the United States might be able to disarm them um, without crossing the nuclear threshold. Um, which is, a, I, in my view, a fantastical fear, but a real and genuinely held fear. Um, and if you were to move in Bridges' direction, then they would, I think, see this as being a move in that direction, the ability to disarm them uh, without, a, without huge high-yield nuclear weapons. So I think that would have a negative effect on stability. Can I just ask you a question? Yeah. So, based on 1994 unclassified numbers, we have, what, around 200 kilotons per stockpile weapon now, which is down from, I think, 1.7 megatons mm -hmm. with fewer warheads deployed in, I believe, the 60s or 50s. Uh, why, if you're Chinese and you're, let's assume, Bridges in charge, would you read his action for a lower-yield weapon as likely more usable than a higher-yield weapon? Well, uh, because I think... That's, I mean, isn't that the whole argument about what Bridges is doing? I mean, it, 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 it's inherent in Bridges' argument, which brings me on to the second point of what I was saying, that in his view this would be a more usable capability because the yield would be lower. Now, I think there is something to that argument. Uh, I think this is an example of where what Bridges is suggesting would enhance the credibility of deterrence. But to my mind, it would only do so in a very, very narrow way. Because, um, you know, if the US wants to use a nuclear weapon in a, in a crisis um, and wants to do so without massive civilian casualties, it can do so at the moment by choosing relatively isolated targets. So I actually don't view the problem that Bridge identifies as being a terribly big problem. So to my mind, you would have a situation where what he's suggesting would very, very slightly increase the credibility of deterrence, but cause a more significant stability problem. So that's why I oppose what Bridge is suggesting. But from the point of view of how we define these things, I think that's a good illustration of why it's helpful to think about the effectiveness of deterrence and strategic stability as very analytically separate concepts, because it makes it much easier to set up these trade-offs, even if you don't agree with, with my conclusion about what those trade-offs are. Can I, yeah, so... so um... You know, I think, as usual, J James and I agree on a lot of the, <clears throat> the intellectual framework, although we're, we're coming out in, in different places. I'd, I'd say, in response to that, um, there, are, there are, obviously, James has made good arguments for why it's useful analytically to distinguish these concepts. I would say, practically speaking, the U.S. government, the, the, in the Nuclear Posture Review, has said that they want, it wants to make strategic stability as an intellectual concept the basis of its nuclear policy with, with Russia and China. So to me, that means that if, if, at least from a U.S. perspective, we need it to actually encompass something more than simply the minimization of incentives to use nuclear weapons, which to me is alone is, is not a sufficient criterion or, or a sufficiently uh, serious or significant criterion for that level uh, uh, that, that the U.S. government is talking about. I mean, I guess the point that James and I disagree on, I think, is that I think without effective deterrence, stability is actually, including strategic stability, is not going to be effective. You have to have that deterrence for the, the stability to be genuinely meaningful. The problem with, with, a, with a pure focus on the incentives to manipulate or, or, or modify your, your nuclear force posture is that that itself doesn't, doesn't tell you enough to say whether or not the, the, the situation as a whole is, is going to be stabilizing. And I think, you know, just to take a, a concrete example, I think the manipulation of nuclear forces can be 
uh, destabilizing, but it's not necessarily, for instance, the, the deployment of um, uh, ballistic missile submarines or of ground mobile uh, uh, ICBM nuclear forces, to me, is not necessarily destabilizing since it actually increases the survivability of those forces. So that even talking about increases in alert posture or readiness posture itself without thinking about the broader context is, is I think, uh, uh, insufficient. Um, in terms of the specifics about the, the W76 option, and I, I don't want to get too much into the details because it's a relatively a narrow a recommendation. Um, I see what James is saying. I guess the first thing I'd say is it's still going to be a nuclear weapon. So, in fact, that's crucial to the point of my argument is it's actually very important that it still remains a nuclear explosion. Nobody would confuse it for, for a conventional explosion. So it is a big deal. That's actually the point is to signal to your opponent that you've just crossed a big line. Um, but I do think it has, it has just, you know, the, the difference between uh, a primary only versus a secondary only is something on, the, on, the, on an order of magnitude, so it is significant. And I'd say, you know, if, if the U.S. actually took this step, I think Russia and China, you know, they might be perturbed at, on a political level, but the, such a weapon would actually be less effective as a first strike weapon. I mean, the U.S., if, it's really, if it would be really serious about executing a first strike against, against a Russia or a China, would need to have higher yield weapons to deal with hardened targets. So I think, if anything, it would say to, the, to Russia and China, actually, we're not, we're taking a slight step away from a first strike posture. Thank you. There are two new concepts now. Effective deterrence has been used and made reference to several times. Uh, there's another concept that's creeping in here, and that's vulnerability. Uh, at least I hear it around the margins. Uh, to what extent are we taking the right decisions now vis-a-vis any of the three essays you've written that enhance stability vis-a-vis vulnerability or effective deterrence? Either or any of you. The Russian side can go first. If yeah, I mean, I, I just want to, and I think that this is, is relevant to the, the back and forth between Bridge and James. I mean, obviously, you know, I cautioned at the end of my, of my opening remarks, it is impossible to, to do the kind of mirror imaging exercise. It is impossible to simply kind of channel the Russian decision-making process. A, because we honestly don't know what that is. And B, because uh, there's no doubt that there are any number of complex and contradictory views ex- extant within that, as there are on our side. Uh, what I think we can do is is spin out several different concerns that we know exist on the Russian side and ask what might be the implications of certain actions, certain postures for those concerns. So I think on the one hand, there is absolutely a an, an adherence to uh, you know the the sort of uh, joint declaration traditional uh, crisis stability arms race uh, stability conception in which you know as long as a posture change is fundamentally no more likely to incent a first strike, you know, fine. I think it's understood for what it is. And and in this respect, actually, I tend to think much more about the current very intense debate because so much has been written about it on missile defense rather than, than you know, posture in the traditional sense of, of the weapons, of the offensive weapons. And, and there the argument has credibly been made by smart Russians that um, no, this really doesn't change the balance, or at least it doesn't for the foreseeable future. Is that a function of the fact that you have a treaty, or a function of the fact no. that the treaty provides signaling, or it's entirely independent of that? It's a function of the assessment of the technology and the state of the technology. It could change. Um, but, but the assumption, the core and underlying assumption is that given the technological capability or given the posture, if we're talking about an offensive weapon, uh, we must assume that the United States is just crazy enough to do 
you know, X thing that we're worried about. Which brings me to a second, I think, very distinct perspective, and for the sake of analytical clarity, I, I want to introduce it now. This is what I call the classic kind of post-Soviet or anti-bullying perspective. And this is where the, the use that we're concerned about is not, in fact, a nuclear exchange uh, or, indeed, a first strike. It is the enabling of reckless behavior in terms of power projection into Russia's neighborhood, which is America's unilateral purview today that Russia simply doesn't share. Much as it would love to, it's having trouble even projecting to the eastern Mediterranean today. And I think that's where posture changes, be it you know defensive capabilities, be it creative new conventional capabilities, or be it a changing of the nuclear threshold is of tremendous concern to Russian decision makers because it is indicative of, let's just call it a more activist or, or, or a lowering of the threshold uh, for American power projection. And then you have to ask the question, well, you know, what, what would America, first of all, assume that, you know, the, the sort of friendly face of the Obama administration and the Prague agenda and all of that stuff ceases to exist after the next election, because that's the basic assumption Russians always go with. And then second, well, what are Americans likely then to do in the context of a third country crisis, a la the 2008 Georgia war, right? Given options of that kind, are Americans not going to have incentives that we really don't want them to have to push very close to the threshold? And I think that's... Well, that's not a bad place to leave off where yeah. I had left it before, which is, are we taking the kinds of steps we need to take now for effective deterrence and reassurance and et cetera? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a critical question at the current time because of you know, budget problems generally and sequestration more specifically. If you look at what the Pentagon's wish list for nuclear weapons is over the next two decades, um, new submarines, new penetrating heavy bomber, new cruise missile, uh, new ICBM, um, plutonium handling facility, uranium handling facility, new command and control, any number of new warheads. Um, sorry, life extensions. I misspoke. You can say it. Um, it's okay. No, no, no. I, I genuinely didn't mean you. Um, the... Um, to my mind, the U.S. can't do all of that, and Congress is not going to pay for all of that. So in a constrained budget environment, the question of what systems are more stabilizing and what systems lead to more effective deterrence seems to me a profoundly important question. And if we approach this problem you know, in the normal way that Washington approaches spending of just fighting it out based on lawmakers' individual parochial interests. I think there's a fairly low probability the U.S. ends up with the strategically optimal posture. <laughs> In fact, it's probably approaching zero. Let me give you an example of that. Let's hypothetically, and I know Bridge will dispute the premise here. That's fine. Let's hypothetically assume the U.S. decides to move to a dyad. If you fight it out politically... I think you end up going to ICBMs and SLBMs for the reason that the bomber is the low-hanging fruit. Uh, it is easier to kill the bomber than it is to kill anything else. I think that would be a very bad posture of a diet of SLBMs and ICBMs because the only signaling option you give the president in a crisis is sending SSBNs to sea. Given their very, very hard hard target kill capability, that is a potentially very worrying thing from an adversary perspective. If the president doesn't want to signal aggressively, 
that then, then, then you force the president, if the president wants to signal but not to signal very aggressively, then that dyad forces the president to signal aggressively or not to signal at all. I think a much better dyad would be SLBMs and bombers. But you have to decide to get there. If you fight it out just in a kind of a narrow parochial political way, I don't think you get there. Um, so exactly for, I, I, I think, you know, it's an incredibly important question. And to my mind, that's exactly why we need to be having these conversations right now. Because if you can't do everything, and mm-hmm. actually it's not a bad thing to my mind that the US can't do everything, but you may disagree with that. But if for practical reasons the US can't do everything, a strategic debate about what the best things to keep are seems to me critically important. Rich? Yeah, well, just briefly, I mean, on the on the question of cost and budget, I, I don't disagree with James. I mean, he won't be surprised to hear me say, I, I don't. I think we should maintain the force posture and the force structure that we have. I don't think it makes sense to 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 look equivalently across the defense architecture and just take something from everybody. I, I think having the force that we have today, having that architecture at the, at the top of the escalatory ladder, is an enormous advantage and it's stabilizing. Frankly, uh, you know, from my view, the U.S. should be cutting from the ground forces. We don't in in the in the coming you know global strategic scenario that we're looking at. We do need the high end capabilities. Uh, and we don't need these very, very large uh, uh, ground forces for kind of counterinsurgency missions or stopping the Russians coming through the Fulda Gap. So that's where we should be looking to cut. The nuclear forces are not that expensive on, on relative order. There are going to be peaks and valleys in expenditure, but I think we should, we should, we should take those in. I agree with James about, about the, the, the political way, and I think that's hopefully what, what little good maybe we, we can do is to try to, is to, try to ra- raise these kinds of issues. In terms of vulnerability and effective deterrence, in my chapter I argue that the real concept of strategic stability should only fully apply to those countries with which the United States exists in a vulnerability situation. And in, in, in following uh, Jim Schlesinger and others, to me, that is, that is Russia and China. Those are the countries for, uh, with respect to which it does not make sense, uh, it is not practical, it is not advisable on a number of, of levels for the United States to seek uh, uh, the kind of invulnerability that would result from the combination of strike, ISR, defenses, etc. That doesn't mean that we don't have any defenses of any kind, certainly, but it does mean that you've entered into a, into a different situation in which you are accepting some degree, although not precisely equal or equivalent uh, uh, vulnerability. But that, this, that, that is why these, these, these questions become so important, because you want, you know, in the future, and I think Matthew, Matt put this very well, it is likely that we are going to continue to have, or may increasingly have, unfortunately, have tensions, if not worse, with, with Russia and China. And we need to be able to do so and to, to be able to operate in those periods in ways in which we are not highly, highly concerned uh, about, um, you know, first strike or about the itchy trigger finger, major advantages accruing to the, to the guy who strikes first uh, and so forth. And I think that's an, a, a point upon which, upon which we all agree. Can I, Tom, can no, I just please. add something on that? Look, uh, I think there are, there are three um, perception issues that are going to be of importance to the Russians in terms of adjusting our... Uh, triad or our, our posture more broadly. Uh, the first I've already mentioned, which is if you're doing things that lower the threshold for use, that's just obviously of concern. The second is if you're doing things that, that remember, this is a posture that has been shaped by decades of parity-based thinking, right? It is thinking about absolute balance and parity structured through arms control negotiations. Once we're no longer in the era of that being the kind of defining framework, then you have real concerns about advantages that cannot initially be understood but that accrue to one side, you know, very 
very compellingly, and, and that could lead to the type of behavior that I, I referred to before. But then the final point is, actually, what happens if what James is talking about happens? And, and for kind of political de facto momentum reasons, uh, we are simply devaluing the place in our, in our national security thinking of our nuclear posture. I mean, we're, we're simply lowering the overall relevance of that in our, in our national security outlook. I think that's actually very bad for Russians. Because if, you, if right. you sort of see my, my great power gambit point, you know, that is the one area in which Russians get to sit at the big boys' table with the United States. And I think a future, and, and, and you know, the, the really surreal thing here is that um, this, by, by intuition or by simply good counsel, is the one area where Putin has actually written quite a bit in sort of forecasting that the future world is not a world of, of nuclear parity and of strategic stability through nuclear arsenals. He says it's a world of different kinds of advanced conventional capabilities. But until such time, and he says this, until such time as Russia can compete in that area, we're damn well going to keep it a world of nuclear parity. Let me ask a question then, and this will be one of my last. Um, to an extent that a weapon system is dual capable, that it can be nuclear and conventional, is it more or less destabilizing? And is that dependent on its range? Is it dependent on what it goes on? And what relevance does it have for stability? Um, it depends. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 can't, I, I can't give you a general answer because that encompasses a huge number of um, um, systems. Let me, let me give you one example. It is reported that the Chinese command and control system for nuclear weapons, for their nuclear missiles, is the same as their command and control system for conventional missiles. I have spent a long time trying to decide whether that's genius or idiocy. Um, it's arguably genius because it raises the barrier for the U.S. attacking that system. With the goal, you know, if in a crisis the U.S. wanted to deny China the ability to command its uh, conventional missiles, the fact that the U.S. would then be attacking nuclear command and control system um, would be a real restraining factor on the U.S. Equally, if the U.S. then decided to do it, it would be extraordinary escalatory. (laughs) Kind of making up words here. But um, the, so, so, you know, that's, that's an example of where, you know, you can, I think, genuinely argue these things both ways. Um, you know, as far as bombers go, you know, I think it's not a particularly big issue whether they're dual capable or not. You know, the U.S. and Russia have negotiated ways of doing the accountancy for arms control purposes. So, in other ways, I don't think the dual capable issue is a particularly big one, one way or the other. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say, you know, this obviously has been an issue in the past. I mean, practically speaking, we're going to have to deal with it because of cost. But also, um, one of the key points of stability that I think everybody agrees with is it's, it's vital for, for the countries that are, exist in this relationship uh, to have survivable forces, no matter what the attacking, the, the nature of the attacking uh, capability is, if it's conventional or nuclear. So the... the um, the, 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 the invulnerability, the reliability as a retaliatory force of, of a Russia or a Chinese or an American nuclear force should not depend on whether the incoming asset is, is, is nuclear or conventional. So in a sense, ultimately, it won't, it won't make a huge difference vis-a-vis the key criterion, which is the reliability and the, and the survivability of yeah, that I second strike force. Have to say about this it's but the, 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 problem, the problem with dual, dual capability and kind of the spreading 
ambiguity, I think, of capability generally is what continues to be treaty accountable and what, what is no longer treaty accountable. Because when you get outside that safe space, you start to get into this predictive realm that I was describing Putin having nightmares about. Um, and, and that, I think, is where the Russian attitude, I, I frequently have heard it put to me, and you know, those of you who go to Russia a lot have probably heard this too, well, what happens when Sarah Palin is president, right? <laughs> it, it, it's just the idea that, okay, fine, so we sort of believe you that you're not building these things so as to use them one-to-one or one-to-two against our you know, mobile or, or ICBM missiles, but seriously, people, we don't really believe in your system. Uh, so unless you're bound by a treaty and unless we're there counting the stuff, no deal. Well, that leads me very nicely to my last question, which is uh, what role is there for arms control in this process in the future if we are presuming that the United States will have many things that don't count inside current limits or we are assuming the Russians do? And for that matter, that there are no limits on China. Uh, there is a dialogue with them. So what role does arms control have for reducing the risk of major war with Russia and China in the future? Do we wait till 2021 when the New START Treaty expires? Or should we, in fact, go ahead and preemptively announce we will go to 1,000 to 1,100 deployed nuclear warheads, as some are now publicly arguing for? That's not arms control. That's a unilateral decision. But what role does arms control play in that? And I think Matt hits it very nicely, the nail on the head. What is and what is not limited? And if less things or fewer are limited, what is the implication for stability? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll take it correct. I mean, I think arms control con- continues and will continue to play an important role, um, probably more as a, as a, you know, my view is that it should, it should have a, a strategic logic internally, but it, a lot of its benefits are actually, are actually political. I mean, obviously the Cold War arms control systems were an attempt to number, do a number of things, but one of them was to restrain or reshape uh, forces that had built up through an internal logic that had a lot of uh, uh, destabilizing aspects. The forces that are being deployed today are more reflective of the kind of importance of second strike, of retaliatory capability, of at least to some extent not focusing as much on first strike weapons. Um, that said, there are areas where where I think progress could be made. James and I worked on something about, for instance, doing, uh, I mean, it's not formal arms control, but it's an arms control type step, for instance, testing the capability of U.S. conventional cruise missiles against against silos to see, to, to jointly establish between the United States and Russia whether or not uh, this this concern is valid, and if they, if it is valid, then that's a basis for taking uh, corrective corrective steps. You know, obviously the U.S. has to do what it has to do, but but things that might be able to ameliorate those concerns. Um, I, I for one, I don't see a real need for an arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia before New START uh, goes out of force. I mean, obviously the tactical nuclear weapons are a concern for us, but more from a political uh, point of view than than from a real strategic point of view. And with respect to the Chinese, James and I participated in a in a, a working group on U.S.-China uh, nuclear weapons relations that, that we, we just released. Um, I think arms control is something that, that certainly, as we go forward, if current trends continue, will be relevant with the Chinese. At this point, it's politically it's sort of infeasible, and given what, what the U.S. government assesses the Chinese nuclear force to look like, it's probably more complicated than it's worth. That, that said, you know, China's main emphasis has been on mobile IC, nuclear ICBMs, uh, which, which is something that the U.S., you know, from a stability point of view, uh, you know, on, on conceptually shouldn't shouldn't object to. Obviously, they're making moves towards uh, strategic submarines uh, and so forth. But at this point, I think arms control with, with China is a little premature. But dialogue and 
specific steps, again, aimed at trying to minimize these destabilizing aspects of the nuclear relationship are valuable. Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, so arms control really is is the key here from Russia's perspective, because this is the area where Russia has the most to play with uh, and the most stake, you might say. Um, but I think you have to make a really clear analytical distinction between arms control as a process and arms control uh, treaties as an outcome. Um, I think I agree with, with Bridge that there is very little compelling incentive, definitely on the Russian side, uh, to produce a new treaty before you know we get near the expiration of New Start, um, you know from the standpoint of, of this of this great power gambit, uh, I describe uh, arms control negotiations as being the institutional embodiment of Russia's great power status. In other words, there is no better proof than sitting you know one to one with with the world's you know sole sort of mega power uh, and doing arms control talks. That said. Um, I also use the phrase, I believe, uh, that substantive advancement toward cuts is much less appealing because it's a one-way street to a dead end, right? Russia's not going to develop substantial new, you know, bargaining chips um, after the conclusion of an arms control treaty, which entails cuts. Now, that said, there is enough adherence to this traditional view of strategic stability as crisis stability and arms race stability that as long as the cuts are compatible with that and they're obviously mutual, that I don't think, you know, it's... It's not about there being cuts. It's about, you know, do they make a difference in the balance? Um, that said, I think the problem will remain, and I, and I do not see a solution for this in the next decade in the time frame in which a, a new new start would have to be negotiated, which is that there is no question that not everything is going to be in the next treaty. And from the Russian perspective today, in order to actually do the treaty, I mean, to do the, the sign on the dotted line, to do the implement, unless it's a, an utterly sort of meaningless treaty, um, you know, like let's just continue inspections on the basis of everything we already have, that, that they would do. But in order to do a genuinely new treaty, I truly believe everything's going to have to be included, or nearly everything. And, and that to Russians today, which is strange to me, tends to include everything from, you know, obviously American tactical weapons in Europe to the British and French arsenals, to CPGS and space capabilities, and obviously missile defense. And you start to talk about things where it's, it's obvious that elements like these are going to be excluded from the American perspective. And so as long as you're analytically talking about the arms control process, by all means, let's sit down and let's talk. If you're talking about reaching a conclusion you know, and signing on the dotted line, I'm, I'm very doubtful that that would happen. James? Let me make two brief points. Firstly, arms control has always been about multiple goals. And if arms control wasn't about, multi- about didn't have multiple values to it, you couldn't do it because, you know, you have to get State Department, you have to get the military, you have to get Congress. You know, everybody has to go away feeling that they have some stake in the process. So arms control has always been about serving multiple goals, reducing numbers, reducing costs, enhancing strategic stability, um, making progress on a commitment to go to zero. It's always been about multiple goals. Now, I think we wouldn't want a strategic arms control treaty that didn't enhance strategic stability. And I think there are, um, you know, so, you know, that's a necessary, certainly a necessary condition for me. Um, And I think, you know, I think arms control still has a useful role to play there. I mean, the United States, prior to New START negotiations, made a very big deal about not constraining force structure. 
Uh, I think Russia's decision to pursue a new heavy ICBM has mean a number of officials are thinking, yeah, I'm not convinced that was the best position right now. Um, and similarly, you know, I think Russia has uh, stuff to gain through constraining, through limits on US force structure and actually much more likely issues like conventional prompt global strike. So, you know, I think, I think arms control has a role to play there. Second point about arms control is arms control is about more than just treaties and arms control is about more than just numbers. Uh, you know, arms control, again, going back to Schelling and Halperin, was originally defined as any form of military cooperation between potential adversaries. And I think that's a very useful definition because of how broad it is. And I think particularly with China, um, but also with Russia, there is a huge amount that can be done informally and without treaties. I think these informal steps make treaties more likely further down the line. These are not in any way in tension to one another. I, completely on the contrary. I think they, they, these are uh, uh, mutually reinforcing. But I think if we only think about arms control in terms of numerical treaties, we are going to go nowhere fast. If we have a broader conception of arms control that includes much more than just numbers and much more than just treaties, I think there's a lot that can be done creatively uh, that would enhance stability and make us all safer. All right. Well, I think now at this point I will turn to the audience for their questions. When you get the microphone, please identify yourself. And other than that, it's open. Uh, Harry Blaney, Center for National Policy. Uh, it seems to me from the discussion that I have seen so far, it is this, if I've gone back in time uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union and discussions that you might hear have and, on thermonuclear war and shelling, as you pointed out, and Halpern, uh, and uh, this would be a very good and excellent discussion, but it seems to me that we're living in a different world, and uh, it seems to me that uh, there is almost no chance, and I receive almost no chance, of a nuclear exchange between either ourselves and Russia or China. The interests on both sides are enormous. So what we need is stability and predictability, which we are moving and which Obama is trying to attain. And I suspect in the long run, neither China nor Russia we wish to do. The larger issue, it seems to me, if you're looking at stability, is the question that's beyond that. Namely, how do you enhance the already existing belief that not only is uh, nuclear weapons not usable, but also how to develop relations that makes it even more improbable. I mean, in effect, like what the EU did, uh, it created the impossibility of Germany ever acting again against its neighbors. So really the issue of stability goes beyond the narrow arms control issue and the relationship uh, in broadly economic and political terms. And I would like to ask the uh, panel to, in effect, look at what they might do uh, looking at the relationships, how economic relations, cultural, uh, uh, political, and in a large way, also even the personal, uh, can enha enhance in the long term the stability and institutionalize, as my old boss, Henry Kissinger, used to say, the institutionalize that relationship that would make it impossible to even conceive, even with a Putin in Russia. Thank you. Let me, let me take a crack at this, because I think that's a, it's a... A great. I'm really glad you raised this question, and, and I. This book took about two and a half years to finish. I have another chapter on, on essentially on this exactly this issue that's taken about two years. So, be advised if you're ever thinking about getting involved in an edited volume. But um, uh, 
I think you, it's a really important and interesting point. The question, is war possible today and in the future? And you've, you've hit the nail on the head. You clearly have, I think, one, one point of view. My point of view is, is the other one, which is that war does remain possible and that uh, it's not as likely in the near term as it was uh, during the height of the Cold War, say, in the 1940s or 1950s. Um, but it does remain possible and that, it, and that we have to assume and assess that it may become even more likely uh, and almost certainly will never become completely impossible in the future. You use words like making war unthinkable. In, my, in the chapter that I wrote, I took on what I, I see as the strongest argument uh, for the possibility that war can be eliminated from human, human life, which is, which is, I think, Robert Jervis of Columbia did an interesting work uh, and basically makes the argument that Europe has become a kind of security community. Jervis actually, interestingly, argues that nuclear weapons are critical to enabling uh, that kind of community, but then kind of you get a positive reinforcement loop in which war is no longer possible. Now, I think Jervis makes the strongest argument, but but I but I think it's I think it's wrong. I mean, I think first of all, even if you look at the world outside of Europe, real tensions exist. I mean, I think people are pretty worried about what's going on in Asia uh, with the North Koreans and the possibility of catalytic escalation. You look at what's going on in, in the Senkakus in the East China Sea and in the South China Sea, the possibility of China developing in ways that we don't necessarily like. It's possible that China becomes very pacific and liberal and so forth. Uh, even then, as your old boss, Henry Kissinger, I, I've actually asked him this question, he points out that a democratic China might actually be more dangerous. And that's one, one argument among, among many, but, but that wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. But we don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, the next generation of Chinese, Chinese of my age, did not grow up with the recollection of the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. They grew up, they've grown up with, a recoll- uh, with the, uh, uh, the sense of a rising China, and they may, may want to, to be recognized as such. So, so, so traditional sources of, of tension and the possibility of war still exist. In the case of Europe, look, I think you, make a, you, you put the argument as it's sometimes made, that the EU is the one that, that, uh, that solved the, the, the problems of, of European security. My view is that um, the EU did play a role and the, and the change in mores in Europe has played a role. But I think U.S. and Soviet power were the major factors. The U.S. and the Soviet Union basically occupied Europe. Europe no longer became a, a theater of conflict in and of itself that, that, that could be a relevant uh, uh, arena for, for conflict. In a sense, you could look at it as similar to Virginia and Massachusetts are no longer thinking about fighting each other. But the, the world as such is still an, an arena of possible warfare. I don't want to, I'm not one of these people who says war is, you know, we live in the most dangerous world ever. I don't think we do. We live in a much less dangerous world than we lived uh, 50 years, than, than some of you lived 50 years ago, 60 years ago. But I think war remains possible today. I think it could very well become more likely in the future. And I, what I do know is that nuclear weapons, there are a lot of them around. There are a lot of conventional weapons that are developing. There remain very serious political and other kinds of disputes. New ones may arise. And we need to take this seriously. And this is an issue that, that those of us who, who work on these issues confront often, which is, is this passe? Is this archaic? And I think the, 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 the kind of equilibrium view is, Look, I'm not saying that this is the most important issue on the president's agenda. We got to fix our debt problem, for instance. But hell, if it if it if things went south, it sure would be become that, and that is possible. It's a lower probability event that that needs people thinking about. Um, and and uh, I think there are steps that we can take that can mitigate those risks. I'm one of those who believes that the reason that we shouldn't get rid of nuclear weapons is because they kind of make war a lot less less plausible. And because I th- because like you, I, I don't want war to re- war to come about. But I think that the best way to make war not come about is to be prepared for it and to say this is not something that is going to work for, for you know, an opponent of the United States. James. Um, I'm sorry. And then Matt. Yeah, the, 
this kind of cuts to the heart of whether strategic stability is still a useful concept. So I think it's a really important issue. I don't think probability is the right metric for deciding whether we should worry about something. I think risk is the right metric. And risk is probability times consequence. So I fully agree with you that the probability of a nuclear exchange between the US and anybody else is low. But the consequences are extremely high. And to my mind, that's a situation where the risk is high enough to worry about. Um, That's the first point. The second point is, and I I suspect this is what Matt is going to say, is Russia certainly doesn't share that view. And I think China doesn't share that view either. And, you know, there are people in Russia and China, and indeed people in the United States, including, I I think, a couple of people in this room who are involved or have been involved with drawing up plans for what to do, how to use nuclear weapons in a crisis. So those plans still exist. Um, And as Bridge says, if we ever were to find ourselves in a crisis in which the use of nuclear weapons were imaginable, we'd want us to be as safe as we possibly could. Um, You know, I think Jervis put this beautifully. He said, crisis instability can interact with political conflict. Arms control has never suggested that the former in the absence of the latter would yield war. So the claim here is not that it's the structure of nuclear forces that makes war likely. It's that if you were ever in a situation where, for all the political reasons you've highlighted, war became likely, I think everyone in that situation would very much hope that the incentives for first use would be minimised, especially the incentives for first use because each side was worried the other side was about to go first. I am going to gratuitously, because I I agree with James absolutely that this is the question, I'm going to gratuitously bring in uh, an 800-pound gorilla in any room in any discussion on this topic, which is the the zero agenda. And what I want to say about that is that the zero part gets too much attention and the agenda part gets too little attention because it is analytically impossible to understand what the day after nuclear weapons looks like in the 21st century in the same way that it would be analytically impossible to understand what the day after the internal combustion engine looks like. It has been a framework, a very important framework, in which global security has been determined for far too long. Now, I'm not saying I disagree politically with the goal, but the part that needs the emphasis is the pathway. And that pathway is clearly a gradual pathway whereby when we're 90% there, we know what 100% looks like in a way that we absolutely have no clue today. That's why when you ask about you know, the low probabilities, I absolutely do to think in terms of, of this consequence question that, that James has brought up, but it's really more that consequences have a much consequences, excuse me, have a much different weighting for us today in this security environment, in this, as I think Bridge right, rightly said, you know, maybe it's not about complexity, but but in this in this frankly better world than the world of the Cold War, um, and I do firmly believe that for two reasons. One is that we actually care about a, a stability of a kind today that we didn't have the luxury about of caring about during the Cold War. During the Cold War, we couldn't have hoped for the type of stability that we seek today in the Middle East. There was constant proxy murder going on. Today, we sit down with the Russians. We sit down even with Arab countries, and we seek to end those things. Now, we're not always successful, and the Middle East is the worst example of that. But there are many other theaters, Latin America, Southeast Asia, where there was constant instability at the sub-nuclear threshold all throughout the immensely stable traditional Cold War order, where today there is stability. And then the second kind of lowering threshold in a good way um, 
is the idea that the threshold of deterrence is much lower. I don't think anybody, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, those who have sat at the highest councils of state here, but I don't think anybody is seriously going through sort of McNamara-style calculations of the number of cities that we could lose. I think deterrence is one city. I think deterrence is, you know, a nuclear explosion. I think, I think we're in an era where uh, fundamentally the conversation has been abstracted to that point, and I think that that's a good thing. The last point that I want to make uh, is to maybe try and answer, I, I believe you posed a set of questions about kind of what to do. Um, I think that there is a way to, it's not a way around strategic stability, but there is a way to comprehensive stability through other dimensions of the relationship. I think that there are other phone lines that complement the red telephone today. Uh, unfortunately, we have this nasty habit of uh, it's sort of like a, a rental apartment where each new tenant decides they're going to switch from Verizon to Comcast and back and forth. And we just keep installing the phone lines and we keep tearing them out. And, and, and you know, you, you use the magic I word, institutions, which is something I actually take a fair amount of flack for in, in the Russia field, which is uh, one of these fields of sort of necromancers who go around with like, you know, <laughs> magical abilities. I, mean, I actually think... Edit that part out. I, I, think, I think that, that, that sort of... And I'm a lawyer, right? I think institutions matter and frameworks matter and processes matter. And we've created these commissions and working groups where we're supposed to talk all about how to have stable and consistent relations and open doors on all kinds of issues. And then we end them. We end them with each new political administration or each new mini-crisis, a la Magnitsky, and then the anti-Magnitsky and blah, blah, blah. And we've just done this again recently. And I think that the tragedy of this is not only that we know what to do and we're not doing it, but that... You know, even this president, who staked a huge chunk of his sort of foreign policy statesmanship credibility on the Russia relationship, I think the conventional wisdom in Washington today, and again, someone who's, you know, inside, please correct me in private if you must, is that the only way to get the president's attention on Russia today is going to be through new nuclear negotiations. And I think that that's idiocy. Okay. Next question. I think you had your hand up first. And then we'll go over here and then there. Yeah, this is a question uh, for Matt. And uh, Matt, you, you pointed out that for the Russians, an arms control framework... Could you identify yourself? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Justin Anderson, SAIC. Thanks. An arms control framework for, for nuclear stuff is very important. Uh, gives them a seat at the table, uh, makes them appear to be a great power. And similarly, that anything that sort of devalues nuclear weapons, you know, done by the United States or others... Um, they tend to view as possibly diminishing that great power status. And so there's, there's a hesitancy or even a suspicion when something like that happens. So I wonder if that raises the possibility that strategic stability is often linked uh, by, by analysts with uh, nuclear reductions. Not all analysts, but many analysts link strategic stability with nuclear reductions. Does this raise the possibility that if, say, the United States were to unilateral, unilaterally reduce its nuclear weapons, it would, in fact, lead to a less stable relationship with this Russian government because it would lead them to wonder if the United States doesn't value nuclear weapons anymore, or at least not as much as it used to, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're looking at the relationship with us differently and maybe they're looking at their, their force posture for all forces differently in a way that's very bad uh, for, for Moscow. 
Okay, I think we'll start with Matt and then go yeah. James and then Bridge last. I mean, that, that's a fantastic question because of the questions that it implies. And the questions that it implies are, why is Russia unsure about why we're doing what we're doing? Uh, because the whole point of the, of, the, of the context of this arms control process is that Russians understand why we want what we want, and including why we want to keep what we already have, and why we want to get rid of the things or are willing to get rid of the things that we're willing to get rid of. So I think um, surprising unilateral moves would be mistaken in that respect. Unsurprising or coordinated unilateral moves, a la you know, what we did in the early 1990s, can be very beneficial. Now, all of that said, there are two camps, and, and this is, uh, please, I would, anyone who has comments or questions about the chapter, I would I'd be happy to talk to you anytime offline as well. One of the four sort of schools of thought that I, two of the four schools of thought that I introduce here actually are contrary schools of thought. Um, the, the post-Soviet sort of anti-bullying view, uh, I think, might genuinely be concerned about uh, reductions just because they would relatively then increase the importance of other systems where Russia has not a prayer of sort of balancing the United States. And in that view, even if you know why the U.S. is reducing and you know by how much and you've done it in, through consultations, it's just underscoring the irrelevance of sort of Russia's ability to deter in, in sub-nuclear contexts where it's very concerned. And then, the, and then the second contrary view is sort of obvious. It's the, the guys who, you know, have the epaulets and the military-industrial complex, and they want to build the stuff that they know how to build. Um, and, you know, if you decrease their, their justification for doing that, you see where I'm going with this. I think they you had like your it. hand up first, and then we'll go to Sam. Jeffrey Lynn from Senator Angus King's office. I was wondering particularly, this is directed at all of you, but perhaps Mr. Colby in particular, about sort of possibly the possibility of a U.S. nuclear dyad in the future, namely some combination of SLBMs, either ICBMs or bombers. And my question essentially is, would it be practical, that is desirable, in the terms of strategic stability, keeping it, that is, to, say, remove ICBMs in order to pay for strategic missile defense, such as the EPAA and the G GBI? Would that be destabilizing? Oh, good, good question. I guess, um, well, first off, I'll say, I think, you know, as I said earlier, I think we should maintain the triad. And I think, you know, to be fair, the where, where places I think we should bear the cost are, are in things like the ground forces and other efficiencies you could find in the Department of Defense. Again, the, the, the overall recapitalization costs are, are not, not huge. Nobody's talking about getting rid of the boomers, which are by far the most expensive leg. Uh, the bombers you're going to do anyway, and you would have you just make them dual capable, which is a relatively marginal cost compared to the cost of the total program. And the ICBMs are, are actually not really that expensive, depending on, on how you did it, but certainly there are options that are not that expensive. I don't think that uh, moving to, the, to a dyad is, is a good idea for, for stability reasons. I think not just because of the, the multiplicity of uh, uh, survivability, you know, kind of factors that that gives you, but also because there are characteristics of the force in terms of the way it operates, in terms of the, the way the weapons uh, themselves would operate and the weapons that go along with those particular capabilities, uh, that, that you want to have as many of those options as, as you possibly can. And I, I discussed this in my chapter. It's important to have those. And particularly because the U.S. weapons complex is sort of frozen in amber, um, you know, for reasons, uh, you know, for, for other political reasons, it's important to maintain the optionality that we do have and, if, and, if, and if possible, to, to improve on it. I'll say this. I definitely don't think you should draw from the offensive forces to fund things like missile defense. Um, 
you know, I think General Chilton was right on target in the New START uh, uh, discussions when people were talking about trading off ICBM silos for missile defense. Missile defense is great against something like a North Korea target, uh, an Iran target. We should be putting money against those problems and trying to maintain our invulnerability, certainly the homeland invulnerability. We need it for theater missile defenses. The root of our strategic posture and certainly the root of our, of our uh, you know, ultimate deterrent is the nuclear offensive forces. Um, you know, we, we live in a world in which I think Matt, even though I wouldn't necessarily precisely agree in all contexts, Matt put it well. In this day and age, it's one city. You are never going to get a missile defense capability that is going to be able to guarantee you uh, in, in, to the extent that the president would actually need the invulnerability of every city in the United States. There are multiple, if one weapon gets through the way a nuclear weapon works, if there's one that gets through that blows up, you, you've just lost. And so missile defense is great, but the, the, I mean, from my point of view, the most important part of the U.S. strategic posture is that, is that ultimate cornerstone, which is the nuclear deterrent. I think this is something that, that's unfortunate that a lot of the, the, the discussion on Capitol Hill over the last couple of decades has trended towards this, this real focus on missile defense, which is an important part and is something that we need to focus on, but has become sort of all-consuming and has left uh, less interest and in sort of an understanding for the importance of the offensive forces uh, to the detriment of our, of our overall strategic discussion and strategic decision-making. Um, there's a political reality that I think Bridge doesn't want to accept, which is um, Bridge goes, look, nuclear weapons are incredibly important. Um, take money from other parts of DOD to fund nuclear weapons. Um, and I don't think Congress sees it that way. Um, the reality is that as a political matter, whether you like it or not, the huge wish list that the Pentagon has for nuclear weapons over the next 20 years is going to be very, very hard to fund. Regardless of whether it should be funded, as a political matter, it will be very hard to fund. It is very unfortunate that, you know, the U.S. nuclear arsenal, and no one would have ever designed this. I mean, if you could go back 50 years, you wouldn't do it this way. But the U.S. nuclear arsenal as it turns out, has kind of needed replacement in waves. It hasn't been one component at a time. It's like everything needs replacing, then you don't do anything, and then everything needs replacing again. So I think the issue of what components are the more important and what components are less important seems to me a profoundly important question. Now, to my mind, um, you know, no one's disputing the importance of the subs. I think the bombers have a lot more value than the ICBMs, frankly. And, you know, nobody's talking about pulling the ICBMs out the ground tomorrow. The Pentagon is talking about doing yet another life extension beyond 2030 on the ICBMs. But, you know, in a world of limited resources, I think, you know, there's a lot more value to the bombers. Um, the value of, um, speaking personally, you know, the value of gravity bombs is increasingly unclear to me. Obviously, if I support a bomber, I have to want something to go on that. But for me, that's a cruise missile rather than a gravity bomb. Um, so ICBMs and gravity bombs, the value is not entirely clear to me. Also, you know, on terms of the infrastructure, as somebody who's been, you know, publicly associated with zero and still firmly believes that that ought to be the goal of U.S. policy, you know, there's, I think you run into stability problems if the U.S. goes down to lower and lower numbers. Uh, Russia's ability to produce warheads, to produce pits, is much bigger than the U.S. So I think modestly increasing the U.S. ability to produce pits is not at all a bad thing from, strategic, from a strategic stability perspective. But, you know, where do you, 
again, where do you get the money from to do that on top of everything else? Can I, can I just make one? Because I, I think it's an important point. I mean, I, I think James is right to say that it is very hard for the U.S. government and the defense, de- the defense Department and the defense decision-making apparatus within the government to make serious trades and choices among the different services and the different types of forces. However, it is possible. I mean, Eisenhower did it. It has been done. And, you know, I think even if we weren't talking about nuclear weapons, I would say, rationally speaking, if you look at the future U.S. US kind of security concerns, they're likely to be in East Asia, North Korea and China, Iran, potential for Russia, but not a large ground force kind of context. What we need is we need to keep our edge in high-tech sort of strategic assets, you know, space, cyber, long-range strike, uh, you know, survivable kind of maritime capabilities, uh, ISR, that sort of thing. Those are, those are the areas that we need to focus on, if, and, and nuclear goes with that. And, and we do not need large, very expensive, you know, long financial tail kind of ground forces that are oriented in these, in these conflicts that we've been involved with without much positive result over the last 10, 10 years. And so I'm just saying, I agree with you that's a problem, but I mean, I just don't accept that we should accept that, you know, you talk about a certain type of capability and that the trades need to be made, made there. All right, we have one questioner who's been very patiently waiting. Sam Charup, if you want to go. And then we'll come to you. Thanks. Uh, and then we'll Sam, go back there. Sam Charup, uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies. Um, I have a, a sort of point of information for James and a question for Bridge. Um, uh, James, in, the, in your formulation, you're, the first strike you're describing is a disarming one, correct? Um, and then for Bridge... There seems to me a little bit of a contradiction in terms of what your answer to the previous question or your first answer to it, um, and what your the uh, posture shifts you're advocating for. You said, "quote If one gets through, you lost." But aren't the uh, isn't the posture shift you're recommending precisely envisioning a limited nuclear exchange with a uh, Russia or China that has the capability of responding strategically in a non-limited way. So I was I got a little confused there, and that stemmed from my initial question, listening to what you had to say, which is, aren't you essentially envisioning a limited nuclear war between, uh, you know, among one of these right. two of these three countries? And under what circumstances is that um, conceptually does that not rise to the level of? Um, a strategic exchange? Um, I didn't speak with adequate clarity this morning. I, I, I kept on saying first strike when I actually meant nuclear use. Um, fear of a first strike is only one type of instability. Fear of, fear of the adversary using nuclear weapons more generally is actually what I talk about in the chapter when I could write it uh, and, 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 and check what I was saying properly. Uh, and similarly, if, if, if you know, a lot of the Cold War debate was focused on large-scale counterforce exchanges. I don't think the most, by no means the most likely response today from an adversary that fears being on the receiving end of a, dif- of a disarming first strike is a large-scale response. I think there are rational reasons why an adversary might decide to try and use uh, a limited strike to coerce the U.S., to scare the U.S. into backing down. Uh, so I'm not just talking about large-scale counterforce on counterforce here. So, Sam, excellent point, and, and thank you for allowing me to clarify. I, when, when I made reference to Matt's point, I mumbled probably under my breath. Sometimes I mumbled that, that I didn't necessarily agree with his assessment um, because I do think you're exactly right. I mumbled I do, while I was saying it. Yes. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, 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 I do think that what I am envisioning is a, is a limited nuclear conflict because I guess to, your, to address your first point, I don't think 
that under all contingencies that we would care about, one city would be enough to stop the conflict. I mean, one of the problems I think with, you know, and I've written about this separately with some of Ward Wilson's arguments is that he underestimates, you know, he kind of underestimates the, the actual impact of how much ruin there is in a nation. And if we look back just at the era of our grandparents, you know, Japan was essentially entirely burned down and they still didn't give up. So I think that that, that is the kind of baseline that we need to be, when we're thinking about our nuclear posture and our nuclear forces, Obviously, that's exactly what we want to avoid, but we need to, to have in our, in our heads that this is the, 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 the kind of the standard that we're dealing with. This is one of the reasons why I'm generally disinclined to reductions in nuclear forces is because it seems to me that the more damage you can do, all things being told, the more you know, extra buffer of security you have in, in, in your deterrent. In terms of the limited nuclear war, yeah, I mean, I think exactly, and that's something that, that, that you know, definitely has a strange Lovian aspect, but the, but, but the conceptual point is the US, there, there, are, there are contingencies that certainly existed during the Cold War only 25 years ago, and they could arise again, probably most likely in the Pacific, in which the U.S. engages in very serious um, conventional conflict with an opponent. Uh, it may actually not start out as a full-fledged conflict, but, but once these kinds of things get going, there are obvious reasons, and James enumerated one of them, which is the, the, the duality of or the, the dual-linked uh, command and control systems. Um, there are ways in which that could escalate. More probably in the, in the nearer term, it would be that the United States' conventional advantages would be such that it might put our opponent into a situation in which he feels that he wants to use nuclear weapons for exactly the reasons that James, that James was saying. And given our record of how we have pursued war in the last 20 years, there are very valid reasons for countries to think that, that we are going to, you know, we're going downtown and that we are, we are not going to stop until we, we have taken out the whole system. And the way we've done uh, war, the whole shock and awe system, is actually almost ideally suited to make the other guy think that he is going to be put into that situation. Um, so there are a number of reasons to think that, 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 that because of the way we do business, um, uh, that things could, you know, not necessarily because anybody wanted to start that way, but I mean, I think it's a truism that conflicts can escalate without anybody individually at any one point, you know, agreeing, let's, let's escalate World War I so that we f- spend four years in the trenches, right? That's, and even Hitler didn't want World War II. He wanted to, he just wanted to win. He was just wrong, right? Um, so that's one way. The other way is, look, over time, it's not a given that our conventional advantages will, will persist in every, every sort of domain, region, or what have you that we care about or that we need in a given contingency, especially if the conflict is likely to be limited, right? I mean, any conflict like this is likely to be limited in large part because of the nuclear deterrent. Every war in the nuclear era that we've engaged with basically before 1991, certainly in the Cold War context, was always limited. The Korean War, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, but it's possible that, that we will lose out in certain ways that we really care about and that we may return, likely not in the next 10 years, but certainly possible after that to a situation in which we are still extending deterrence to people that we care about and we think this system is worth preserving and conflict arise or could arise in a way that we would be incentivized uh, to use nuclear weapons first because of the vulnerability of certain of our assets or something else. And that's... That's the kind of thing. This also gets ultimately then to the assurance issue, which is that when you're dealing with the allies who you want to keep on side for a variety of reasons, they're going to say, well, you know, wait a minute, how does this work? And you know, the, you know, the, the basic kind of instinct behind what I'm arguing is you know, the idea that you're going to respond to a, conven- a, a, you know, a loss in the conventional context by blowing up the world 
is not the most credible argument for, for an effective U.S. extended deterrent. Okay, we have one question here, and then one in the back, and then one up here, and then one over there, and I think that might take us through the remainder of the time we have. Thank you. Uh, I'm Dr. Willie Curtis from the U.S. Naval Academy, and my question has to do with this perception of strategic stability. Now, uh, in, in, in your uh, discussion, we focus on three powers, China, Russia, and the U.S., somewhat reminiscent, I think, of, of the bipolar uh, concerned about strategic stability between the Soviet Union and the U.S. during the Cold War. Should we not also be concerned about what I consider to be regional strategic stability? And I'm thinking now of the Iranian, uh, the Middle Eastern situation and Asia. How does that affect, uh, especially in a multipolar world, how, how would you assess stability, strategic stability, are we talking about in the case of the three global strategic stability with no concern for regional strategic stability? Because once the Iranians and, 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 and the others acquire nuclear weapons, if you define stability as related to the nuclear weapons, you have strategic, uh, regional strategic uh, st uh, stability that we're concerned about in a multipolar world. And indeed, we might even have many mad uh, conditions between, let's say, Israel and, and Iran. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a profoundly important issue. I didn't talk about Iran and North Korea for a very simple reason, which is the following. Believing that the U.S. should strive for strategic stability with Russia or China implies an acceptance of mutual vulnerability. It implies that the U.S. is not going to try and undermine Russia or China's nuclear forces in a crisis. I'm not prepared to grant that to North Korea or Iran. I'm not in favor of accepting mutual vulnerability with either of those states. Um, I think in those situations, having the ability, you know, ballistic missile defense against those countries, um, preserving you know, the option to use nuclear weapons first against those countries. Um, that's something I support against North Korea and Iran. Um, so I don't really view... My goal in those cases, I think, you know, has to very much be on the effective deterrent side in order to keep those regions stable, uh, rather than on the classic strategic stability side, which, for various reasons, I won't go into right now, I just don't think is an appropriate thing to grant North Korea or Iran. Yeah, I'll just say, I think, I agree with James on the vulnerability point. I mean, I, maybe I'm going to come out on the, on the other side. In a sense, I think there are, and I'm sure you'd agree, that there are elements of the stability concept that you would like to be able to apply to it, the problems like Iran and North Korea. Nobody wants to go to war with Iran and North Korea by accident or because of, of basically a misunderstanding. But the point is, is that we are, this, this concept is not designed, it's not about Iran North Korea. We are still trying to keep them under, under a strategic thumb uh, through defenses, strike, and other, other assets. We have one in the back and then one in the front and then one more over here. Okay. Um, Dr. Diane Perlman, School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason. So my comments are coming from the field of conflict analysis and uh, political psychology, social science. And I'm going to touch on some of the points that were made. Um, yeah, first of all, the question of is war possible, as you suggest, has a lot to do with our behavior and the effect of our behavior on others. And people are more dangerous when they're afraid and when they're insecure. 
and you said that we might unwittingly get into something, but I think we have a choice in this, in um, reducing tension, and organizing principle is tension reduction. So anything we do that increases tension, like coercion, threats, pressure, um, has the could have the opposite effect. Um, and um, you know, we've mentioned she mentioned Jervis, and uh, he also Jervis Deutsch Ned Lieber that also talk about spiral theory. Um, and we have kind of a hegemonic um, one theory. Deterrence is the only theory. And, you know, what they say is that if you act according to deterrence theory and build up your arsenals to signal that, you know, we'll retaliate if you attack us, other parties become afraid and feel the need to build up their arsenal. So it has the opposite effect of provoking a, a spiral theory. Um, and is the interrogative coming? We're just running out of well, time. Well, just that second order, that we could go a long way in dealing with the underlying conflict and the day before zero is that we work on you know analyzing and resolving some of the conflicts between the nations so that they feel the less need for uh, nuclear okay. weapons okay. to deter I, the I, I think that's more of a statement than a question so just because comment, of if someone could comment on it I'll, I'll, I'll take a quick, I mean, go ahead. yeah take a quick quick stab um, look i think you're approaching it obviously from a different a different perspective um, the uh, you know, my view is that nuclear weapons actually enable uh, more cooperation because they do remove a lot of the sources of tension, uh, or at least they they they, they remove they, they make um, more uh, less sensitive the perturbations in the military balance. Since there's a there, you know, especially if it's an effective and relatively <coughs> stable deterrent, it basically says if you go along that path, you you're, you've got to think that you might really get into trouble. So it, it kind of allows you to go more in the direction of positive solutions. Um, I mean, you know, my understanding of Jervis is he thinks deterrence is important. He just thinks it's a little less sensitive, so he, he's not in favor of, of big arsenals, but he, he recognized the need for arsenals of some size. But, look, ultimately, I'm, I'm one of those who believes that, that fear and coercion and, uh, you know, uh, self-seeking behavior and aggrandizing behavior are inherent parts of human social life. And the best way to try to moderate those, you can never remove them, but the best way to moderate them is to have instruments that make them pretty clearly irrational, and that's, that's the best you can hope for. Okay. I'm uh, Stephen Kolecki with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, I'm going to say things I think that will be a little bit heretical in this context, uh, and that's appropriate for someone who works for the church and (laughs) perhaps a little naive, but it seems that an underlying assumption is that armed deterrence equals strategic stability or that that's the path to it. And, um, or at least in this interim time before we go to zero and so forth. And it seems to me that that underestimates the human spirit, that, that in fact, uh, mutual interest has a great, a great stabilizing effect. And the, although there's been some lip service to that, it's really been much more on the strategic parities and so forth. And it seems to me that just as the U.S. transformed its relationships with both Japan and Germany, uh, that it is possible to transform relationships with Russia and with China built on mutual interests and on win-win relationships, and that by not investing quite so much in this armed deterrence, we might get at some of the underlying causes of, of human uh, tensions and conflict by investing more in peace. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I've written a lot about the path to zero, which is something that I very firmly support. And, you know, zero is about, as Matt says, it's about a process, and it's about precisely the process that you're talking about here. Um, 
It's about creating the political conditions so that states no longer feel they need nuclear weapons, so that they have can protect their vital interests without them. And that's not just about armed force balancing. That's about you know fundamentally creating a new security architecture, uh, one based on the rule of law. And that's that's a goal that I've written about and one that I very very strongly support. Um, so. I may have paid lip service to it today from a career perspective, from kind of the totality of my writing. I, I, I don't think I have. But what I think is important is to recognize that even if you think that is a good process, and I do, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, that, I mean, the president stood up in Prague, he pledged a world without nuclear weapons, and what he got from a whole load of other countries was thunderous silence. Um, you know, no other world leader since the president spoke has said, you know, I'm really with you on this, and I'm going to put my political neck out on the line. There was a Security Council summit, uh, which involved subtle criticism of Obama by the other world leaders, but no other world leader has been willing to put their neck out on the line and help him with this project. So as much as I support this project, and I really do, it's going to take time. And to my mind, that forces us to think about, in the interim, if there is a dreadful crisis, what can we do to preserve safety in that crisis. Um, and I don't think that, I don't see any automaticity with nuclear deterrence and stability. I think there are some forms of nuclear deterrence that might be very dangerous in a crisis, other ones that might be less dangerous in a crisis. And the question of what is more dangerous and what is less dangerous in a crisis seems to me a because of this risk aspect I was talking about earlier, the probability times consequence, seems to me something we have to worry about, even as we are committed, as I am, to on the path to zero. Could I quickly... Uh, I think I'm maybe more of an Augustinian than you are, but, I mean, I think um, you talked about mutual interest, and, you know, which is obviously sort of an Enlightenment concept, but, but mutual interest is, is fine, but if, you, if you're going to hook your, your wagon to mutual interest, then you've got to recognize that, mutual, that interest can also take more malign forms. I mean, there's a reason we still have cops with guns around, and ultimately the state has a monopoly of force. And when we're talking about an anarchic, ultimately anarchic international environment, there needs to be recourse uh, uh, to, to force. And so I think you can't just... Obviously, we try to work towards, towards that, but that's, you know... I mean, look, ultimately... Christianity is an aspiration. It's not. It's not. It's not. A, unfortunately, or for, at least for some, it's not a reality at this point. So you have to deal with life as it is and he, as human beings as they are. And I think we we need to be clear eyed when we're thinking about security. And this gets in. I think a little bit. You know, when when I when I hear what the last pope, for instance, said, or or the bishops talk about this. You know, this gets into some of these the, the tensions of the ethic of responsibility. You know, I mean. U.S. government leaders need to have be responsible. You know that's a big risk. And you know if you look at Kellogg Briand and that kind of thing, right? These are very aspirational, but they did not adequately prepare. And what happened? And those, you know, there has to be that aspect. In terms of Germany and Japan, the United States occupied them and co- forced constitutions on them. I don't think that's what Russia and China want. So I think we need to be, you know, when people talk about that kind of a thing, it's we have to be conscious of the of the, the background. I, I want to make a really quick comment that's relevant to this and the other comment about conflict resolution, which is I almost always, in 99.9% of cases, disagree with the kind of hardcore neoconservative linkage camp that wants to just sort of thwack Russians around for not being good Democrats. But the one area where I agree with them is that Russia is not the United States, and we are dealing with a leadership in Russia whose interests are not the interests of Russia, right? 
it's arguable that Washington's interests are not the interests of the United States, but they're held a lot closer than the interests of the Kremlin to the interests of the Russian people. And so I think seeking to find commonality of interest with Mr. Putin, who feels himself to be under assault right now by his own people, starts to look a lot closer to trying to find commonality of interests with, you know, Mr. Kim the Third or with another leader who is truly divorced from his society. Admittedly, it's, it's not there yet in Russia. It may not get there, but it, it seriously complicates the situation and underscores James's point, to, which I would characterize in a simple analogy, which is nuclear weapons are the most dangerous drug on Earth. And while legalization and counseling and therapy might ultimately be the right solution, a lot of people could die between today's situation and that situation, and that's why we do what we do. Was there one more question over here somewhere? If seeing no more questions, then I thank you all for doing your part, which was showing up, which was all I had to do. But let's give a hand to the people who had to do that. Thanks, Tom.